Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Zechariah chapter 9. I've mentioned a few times now that the structure of Zechariah is fairly straightforward. There are three distinct blocks of material. First of all, we have that series of night visions running from 1-7 through to 6-15. Then secondly, there's a series of oracles concerned with the essence of right religion in 7-1 through 8-23. And then lastly, there is a section of eschatological writings beginning in chapter 9, verse 1, and carrying on through the end of chapter 14. So obviously that's the part of the story we enter into today. Now, eschatological writings can be very difficult to interpret. Think of all the different interpretations you've heard about some of the symbols and visions contained in the book of Revelation. Some parts of the Bible are really easy to interpret. The seventh commandment, for example, is super easy to interpret. You shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20, 14, means, you guessed it, You shall not commit adultery. There is no real need to wrestle with that. You don't have to go to seminary to figure that verse out. It means exactly what you think it means. Eschatological writings, on the other hand, are not quite so straightforward. Eschatological writings are less like reading the phone book and more like reading Impressionist art. There is meaning there, to be sure, but we have to be more thoughtful. We have to do a little more homework. And we probably have to be a little more humble when it comes to our interpretations and pronouncements. In terms of divisions within this last section, I appreciate the arrangement suggested by Brian Gregory. He identifies four distinct oracles or pictures. The first one he titles The Coming King. That runs from chapter 9, verse 1 through 11, verse 3. The second one he titles The Rejected Shepherd. That runs from chapter 11, verse 4 through to 17. The third one he titles, The Pierced One. That goes from chapter 12, verse 1 through 13, 9. And then the fourth and final one he gives the title, The Final Renewal, chapter 14, verse 1 through to 21. So we've got four described pictures or four described scenes. They are eschatological in the sense that they are talking about the great events that bring the story of redemption to its ordained conclusion. And of course, as Christian readers of the Bible, we expect all such anticipations to land in some particular way on the person and work of Jesus. He is the one who opens the seals. He is the one who fulfills prophecy. He is the one who brings about the conclusion and consummation of history. So Barry Webb, for example, says here, all the Old Testament promises about the coming kingdom of God find their fulfillment, their ultimate meaning in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, they are not fulfilled in some general way, i.e. the fulfillment is somehow related to Jesus Christ, but in the very specific events of his birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and coming again. This means, among other things, that the fulfillment does not come all at once, but in two major phases, closed quote. And that is the trick, so to speak, for the modern-day interpreter of the book of Zechariah. We know that all these scenes are anticipating events associated with the person and work of Christ. But those works are divided between two comings. 
So when we're looking at these scenes, we have to ask, is this talking about something Jesus did in his first coming or something he will do in his second coming? And because these are apocalyptic images and not names and numbers in the phone book, we will need to offer our interpretations with a certain amount of humility. Sometimes the apostles help us out. Sometimes they're going to pin an event in the Gospels with a line or a scene from Zechariah. And sometimes the Apocalypse of John will do the same thing, borrowing language or expanding upon a scene in such a way that we'll be able to say with some confidence, this definitely goes with that. But sometimes we're going to have to make a guess. And as I said, we're going to need to exercise there a little bit of humility. Now, in terms of this first apocalyptic depiction, beginning here in chapter 9, we are looking at the promise of God to return in power and with great grace and favor to the very heart and center of the covenant community. This oracle makes use of well-known stories and former prophecies, and it stitches them together, almost like a quilt, to depict God's future works of power and redemption on behalf of his people. Future in terms of the time of Zechariah and those who would have initially heard this oracle. The book of Revelation, by the way, makes use of the same basic technique. It also paints pictures about the future using colors borrowed from the past. So the better you know your Old Testament, the more at home you're going to feel in the apocalyptic genre. So we're going to have to work hard over the next six chapters, and we're going to have to be humble. But in the end, it will be worth it. And Joyce Baldwin reminds us of why that is. She says here, Obscure though it is in places, chapters 9 to 14 are the most quoted section of the prophets in the passion narratives of the Gospels. Closed quote. Did you hear that? The six chapters we're about to study here at the end of Zechariah are the most quoted section of the prophets in the passion narratives of the Gospels. I've heard that said in different ways. I've heard it said, for example, by other commentators, that the chapters we're about to read are the most quoted section of the Old Testament other than the Psalms in the Passion narratives of the Gospels, meaning that the apostles and evangelists viewed the most significant events associated with the first coming of Jesus largely through the lens of these chapters. And as we're going to see a little bit later on, the apostles of Jesus also anticipated the great events of his second coming through the lens of these same six chapters. So the significance of the depictions we're about to study together would be difficult for us to overestimate. This is foundational material for anyone wanting to understand what God has done to achieve our salvation through the person and work of Christ. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded, the king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth 
and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. This first section of chapter 9 is very interesting and greatly disputed in terms of how it ought to be interpreted. First of all, we should probably notice that the oracle is undated. Most scholars assume that these later writings and oracles in Zechariah come from the later years of the prophet's life, meaning we are to assume a significant amount of time has elapsed between the close of chapter 8 and the start of chapter 9. The last date we were given in the book was 518 BC. That was the date given for the oracles about fasting and right religion in chapter 7 and 8. That date is about two years after the series of night visions that occurred in the first several chapters of the book. So all of that prophetic activity was clustered around the building of the temple and what the implications of that were for the worshiping community. But now we are fast forwarding quite a bit. Now we are past the big event of the return from exile and the rebuilding of the temple. Now in the spirit, the prophet is looking forward into the far future. And what he sees is God on the march. He sees the judgment of God sweeping down from the north like a flood. The cities and places mentioned go from north to south, like many a conquering army had done in that region over the years. The question, of course, is how we are to interpret that. And there's quite a little bit of diversity here in terms of how that should be done. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary tends to understand the text in a more symbolic or figurative sense. So, for example, it says here, The most satisfactory conclusion is that the writer is not taking any particular historical standpoint, but rather, in the manner characteristic of apocalyptic, is using past events to typify a supremely important future event, just as successive alien armies swept through Syria and Palestine and claimed a right to each territory. So, finally, the Lord will see every proud city capitulate to him. Close quote. So by that interpretation, the prophet is seeing past conquering armies representing a future spiritual conquest of the region. Meaning, the prophet is seeing here all the surrounding areas around Jerusalem eventually being conquered by the word of the Lord and being included in the covenant community. And I think there's definitely something to that. The vision talks about peoples being incorporated into Judah. You see that in verse 7. The Jebusites were basically swallowed up and incorporated into Judah back in the early part of the Old Testament story. So what we could have here is an apocalyptic picture painted in colors, lifted from earlier Old Testament canvases, depicting the future inclusion of the Gentiles in the household of faith. That definitely could be it. Other commentaries, however, take a more literal and historical approach. So Kenneth Barker, for example, sees this as a prophecy predicting the future conquest of Alexander the Great. He says, as history shows, the agent of the Lord's judgment was apparently Alexander the Great. After defeating the Persians in 333 BC, Alexander moved swiftly toward Egypt. On his march, he toppled the cities in the Armenian, Syrian interior, as well as those on the Mediterranean coast. Yet on coming to Jerusalem, he refused to destroy it. Verse 8 
attributes this protection to the miraculous intervention of God, close quote. Now, I think there's a lot to commend this approach as well. The vision of Zechariah essentially depicts a conquering army moving into the region from the north and then welling up around Jerusalem, not to destroy it, but rather to protect it. So first it destroys and casts down cities in the north, then cities on the coast, but then it surrounds Jerusalem like a defending wall. Well, that actually does seem to correspond to the movements of Alexander's army and his campaign in the 4th century. He did destroy the cities to the north, including, of course, most famously the city of Tyre after building a causeway out to it in the middle of the sea. And then he did destroy the cities on the coast. And then, quite unexpectedly, he did not destroy the city of Jerusalem. On the contrary, he granted it special status. Josephus is our primary source for that story. Apparently, while Alexander was conquering the cities of the Philistines, he sent word to the high priest in Jerusalem asking for assistance and supplies. The high priest declined, saying that he had sworn an oath to Darius, that would be Darius III, and that he couldn't break that oath while Darius lived. Well, of course, that infuriated Alexander, and he determined that he would march on Jerusalem as soon as the coastal conquests were completed. And so it happened. Alexander made short work of the Philistine cities and began marching inland toward Jerusalem. The high priest, whom Josephus names as Jadua, was terrified and immediately called upon the whole city to join him in making sacrifices to God and offering prayers for their deliverance. While in prayer, God appeared to Jadua in a dream. He told him not to be afraid, and he gave him a variety of instructions related to the decoration of the city walls and the costumes to be worn by himself and the other priests. He told him to open the gates and to march out in procession to meet Alexander. So Jadua did as he was told. The people dressed in white robes, the priests wore their prescribed costumes, and Jadua donned a purple and scarlet garment, and with a mitre on his head, on which was written the name of God, he led them out in procession. Josephus describes the encounter this way. He says, Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments, while the priests stood clothed with fine linen, and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing with his mitre on his head, having the golden plate whereon the name of God was engraved, he approached by himself and adored the name and first saluted the high priest. Close quote. Now, everyone was astonished that Alexander would behave this way, and Parmenio asked him, asked Alexander to explain why in the world he would prostrate himself before the high priest of the Jews. He answered, saying, I did not adore him, but that God who hath honored him with this high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very habit, habit meaning outfit, when I was at Dios in Macedonia, who, when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea thither, for that he would conduct my army and would give me the dominion over the Persians. Close quote. So, Alexander claims that God told him to go on this campaign through Syria. And he recognized God as the God of the Hebrews when the high priest came out in a costume resembling the image that had appeared to him in the dream. And because of that, Alexander did not conquer Jerusalem, but rather treated them with incredible favor. So, based on that, it's hard to ignore the obvious immediate fulfillment of this prophecy in terms of Alexander's conquest. 
all of the cities mentioned were judged by God through Alexander, and Jerusalem was spared and protected. However, many commentators feel that the prophecy in Zechariah gives indications that it was speaking about more than just this near-future campaign, near-future in terms of the original audience. And so scholars like Mick Comiskey take what we might call a hybrid view. He says, the conquests of Alexander, momentous as they are in the annals of history, are but an earnest of the conquests of Christ's kingdom, which burst into time when a star streaked across the heavens heralding his birth, when at last the dominion of Christ spans the new heavens and the new earth, righteousness will prevail, closed quote. So, Mikomiski sees this as one of those prophecies that is fulfilled in waves, with the first wave only adding to our understanding of the pattern. The conquest of Alexander becomes an illustration in advance of the spread and conquest of the gospel, as nations which were formerly hostile to the covenant community become absorbed in it. I personally identify most strongly with this particular approach. I think the conquest of Alexander fulfilled this prophecy in one sense. But given where the prophecy goes in the following paragraphs that we're just about to talk about, I am convinced that Zechariah was seeing something bigger. I think he was looking back into his immediate past and looking forward into his immediate future. And through the lens of those things, seeing something bigger bigger, and far more profound. Now, at the very least, we can say with confidence that this move of God, in the immediate sense, through Alexander's conquests, prepared the way for the king to come to his people. And that is what Zechariah focuses on now in verses 9 to 10 and following. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, most Bible readers will recognize verse 9 as the verse that is frequently cited in the New Testament with reference to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. As I mentioned, the evangelists and apostles interpreted the ministry of Jesus through Old Testament passages like this one. So when they saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, even the foal of a donkey, which he did very intentionally, they understood that he was making a connection between that event and this prophecy. He was saying very clearly to anyone who was a Bible reader, to anybody with eyes to see, this is that. So let's make sure we understand the symbols here. The donkey, of course, is a symbol of humility and lowliness. It recalls the time that David fled the city of Jerusalem in advance of the rebellious uprising of Absalom. That story is told in 2 Samuel 16, which says, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, 
and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. Close quote. So David fled Jerusalem on a donkey. Now here, the son of David returns to Jerusalem on a donkey. A donkey is a Honda Civic, not an M1 Abrams tank. That's the point. David left Jerusalem weak. He had to regather his forces later to take back the city. So he wasn't riding a war horse or a chariot. He was walking until someone gave him a donkey. A donkey was middle-class civilian transport. And so here, Jesus rides middle-class civilian transport into the city on Palm Sunday. Why? Because he comes in peace. He comes in humility. Verse 10 here, back in Zechariah 9 now, is absolutely fascinating. Look at that. The text says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So, when this humble king comes to his people, God takes from them the traditional weapons of war. No more will the kingdom be defended or advanced in that way. Nevertheless, even without these weapons at their disposal, the kingdom will be secure and it will advance. Indeed, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Thomas McComiskey says here, So it has always been that the church does not effectively spread the gospel by sword or by arrogance, but by mirroring the humble spirit of its king and savior, close quote. Like Jesus, we make our approach to the city in peace. Like Jesus, we make our approach to the city in humility. Like Jesus, we offer to the city reconciliation. Like Jesus, we encourage people to abandon their former hostilities and to be joined as allies with their God and Creator. And like Jesus, we may suffer the antagonism and brutality of the crowds. We may even be put to death. Whatever the immediate outcome, the mission we've been given is a mission of peace. And even without the weapons that we may have chosen, the success and expansion of the kingdom is assured. His Rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Thanks be to God. In the next section of this oracle, the Lord addresses the covenant people. The connecting particle also serves to tie these paragraphs together. Having shown them the future, he encourages them in the present. He says, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold or prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Come back to Jerusalem, he says. I will end your captivity. I will visit you in peace. I will restore what the locust has stolen. Come back. I have big plans and I want you to be a part of them. Verse 13. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Here God is saying that he will wield the sons of the covenant community like a weapon. He will send them out to subdue the sons of the nation. Well, of course, this is exactly what Jesus said to his disciples when he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, Matthew 4, 19. Through his disciples, the king is gathering his people from the nations. Verse 14, then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. 
the trumpet is used to summon people to worship. So again, this is God saying that he will call people out of darkness into marvelous light. He will subdue his enemies and make them into worshipers. Verse 15, the Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bull drenched like the corners of the altar. This is a picture of the empowered and advancing church. God will protect them as they go forth and devour, not in a physical or military sense. This is the parable of the mustard seed. This is the church spreading and absorbing and annexing. They will take some hits, but they will overcome, treading down the sling stones of their enemies. They shall drink and roar as though drunk with wine. The very accusation, interestingly, made against the church on the day of Pentecost. This is a prediction of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The church will be powerful, even otherworldly, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, drenched like the corners of the altar. Verse 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Now, it is interesting that the text says that the Lord their God will save them on that day. Given the imagery of verse 15, we might be inclined to think that they don't need saving. They are devouring. They are treading down sling stones. They are filled with the Spirit. But while they are well-equipped and steadily advancing, it is implied here that they are also fiercely opposed and pressed on every side. So God saves them on that day. He saves them because they are precious to him, like the jewels of a crown he intends for them to shine. Well, that sounds for all the world like the end of the parable of the wheat and the weeds. In that parable, Jesus says that good and evil, the sons of good are going to grow and progress and advance, and the sons of evil will also grow and progress and advance. In that parable, it sounds like it is the middle ground that disappears. Both the sons of the kingdom, the sons of the evil one are advancing, but at the end, the Lord will save his people. Matthew 13 41 to 43 says, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Closed quote. It's almost like Jesus is inviting us to stick a pin, pinning this promise to this prophecy in Zechariah. Both depict the children of the covenant advancing and the children of the enemy advancing. But in the end, on that day, the Lord will save his beloved children and they will shine. Verse 17, For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. The new heavens and the new earth will be a place of health, life, and abundance, a place of peace, a place of feasting, a place of flourishing. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. 
Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 